Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me once again as we prepare to take another look at the more horrific side of humanity. Before we begin, as always, I have my normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, The Death Cast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. If you are interested in signing up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the sign-up button. While there, please consider making a donation to the show by clicking on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon member of the show for as little as $2 a month, just go to patreon.com backslash dcpatreon. And lastly, if you really enjoy this show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. Click on the subscribe page and share the show on social media. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. This week we are doing another standalone episode. This is while I prepare for the bigger, longer series. And this week we're going to be looking at the life and crimes of William Irwin Walker, a.k.a. Irwin M. Walker, also known as Machine Gun Walker. According to all the reports that I was able to find, much of Walker's early life remains a mystery. What is known, however, is that he was born on October 6, 1960, and was raised in Glendale, California, by his parents, Weston and Irene Walker. He also had a sister. One piece of information to point out with Walker concerning his early life is various websites report his date of birth differently. Some state that he was born in 1917, others ranging from 1918 to 1919. I'm going choosing to go with the earliest known possible date of birth for him. Walker's father was a Los Angeles County flood control engineer, while his uncle was a prominent Los Angeles attorney, as well as the chief deputy district attorney. Growing up, Walker has been described as gentle, affectionate, and considerate above the ordinary in concerns of the welfare of others. And it's also been stated that although nearsighted, he was an exceptionally gifted athlete. After graduating from the Hoover School, he attended the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, where 
it's said that he excelled at electronics and radio engineering. Now, Walker only ended up going to this college for about a year before he dropped out. After leaving college, Walker took a job working for the Glendale Police Department, working as a radio operator and a police dispatcher. And because of his expertise with radio, Walker ended up being drafted into World War II, where he was posted to Australia and attended the Southwest Pacific Area U.S. Army Officer Candidate School at Camp Columbia in Brisbane, Australia. He ended up graduating after roughly three months as a second lieutenant before being posted on Wake Island, which I believe is in the South Pacific. This was in June of 1944. In November of that same year, he was moved to Lyot Island in the Philippines, being placed in charge of the Signal Corps and 85 Army soldiers. Later, Walker would recount that after setting up the island, he was told not to worry about setting up any sort of day watch as it wasn't believed that the Japanese would attack this island. After doing this, he was ordered back to the ship and the following day when he returned to shore, he was surprised to discover that during the night there had been a surprise attack during which his closest friend was bayoneted to death. After this, the island came under attack for approximately three days and nights with Japanese paratroopers. It's been said that Walker's men generally liked him, although I could not really find anything concerning what actually happened on the island, whether or not he was seen as courageous or anything like that. But it was apparently a fairly harrowing idea because not long after this three days of combat, Walker informed his commanding officer that he no longer wished to be an officer in the United States Army and asked to be returned to stateside. While he was returned stateside, uh, the Army refused to allow his request to be released from service. He left the South Pacific in December of 1944. And unfortunately, there are really no records of where he went after this point of time until April-May of 1944 when Walker finally got back to the States. And at this point, he was actually promoted to a first lieutenant. A couple of things happened prior to Walker being promoted to first lieutenant. By his own admission, Walker burglarized an auto repair garage 
taking a set of tools, a voltmeter, and a radio tuner. In August of 45, he broke into an army ordnance warehouse in the middle of the night, stealing seven Tommy guns, 12 45 caliber pistols, six 38 revolvers, along with ammunition, holsters, and clips. Walker's superiors, as well as his family, mo both noticed a dramatic change in him when he came back from being stationed in the South Pacific. It was later learned that he carried around a lot of guilt for what had taken place on the island, specifically the death of his friend. He blamed himself for this, and he blamed the deaths of the others on the island for his inability or rather lack of foresight in not ordering the digging of foxholes. This despite the fact that he had been told by his commanding officers not to worry about those type of things. Walker internalized this and Basically, he was suffering from PTSD, although at that period of time it was simply known as shell shock. And most people, especially in the military, didn't really grasp the gravitas of the situation and what was going on with Walker. His commanding officer also noted that Walker refused to really interact with his family after returning, instead renting a small apartment for himself. The few interactions he did have with his family, however, later on they would describe him as morose, melancholy, rough with small children, difficult to deal with, and secretive in his movements and actions. After being discharged from the army in November 45, things in Walker's life really began to spiral. It's known that he was offered his old job back at the Glendale Police Department as a dispatcher, although he turned this down, stating that the rate of pay was not high enough. Now, if you look into Walker, you're going to see a number of discrepancies concerning his life. Some state that he was actually working small, odd jobs while he was still serving in the Army. During this period of time, that's just absolutely not possible. There was no way they would have allowed a active-duty officer to work odd jobs. So it's more likely than not that he was either doing these jobs without his superior officer's knowledge, kind of on the side at night, or he got into these small jobs immediately after being discharged when he entered into what's known as terminal leave. Speaking of which, Walker's crimes began to escalate during that first week of terminal leave that he 
was on, it's known that he stole a car and transferred the license plates on it in order to disguise the fact that it was a stolen vehicle. And he used this vehicle to transfer some of the stolen goods he had taken from the Army Weapons Depot as well as other places that he had robbed. But he didn't stop there. He stole civilian clothing from a men's store, along with amplifiers, electronic equipment, records, movie projectors, recording turntables, cameras, and other equipment to either broadcast music or make movies. He rented a garage not long after this, and it's been said that he stored all of his stolen goods within this garage, which he actually turned into sort of a laboratory where he would do experiments with radios and other electronics. So Walker kept committing various crimes, burglaries, and robberies, and he was paying his living expenses, you know, rent and food and that type of thing, by selling this equipment off, but he didn't get rid of all of it. In fact, a decent amount of it stayed inside of this garage. At some point in April of 19. 46, Walker, who was going by the alias of Paul C. Norris, contacted a sound engineer named William W. Starr, offering to sell him motion picture and recording equipment. Starr was suspicious right off the bat because the equipment that Walker was offering to sell him wasn't the type of Thing that just anybody would have. This was very high-end, professional uh, sound equipment valued at the time at around $40,000. So after agreeing to purchase this equipment from Walker for a very reduced price, Starr actually contacted the LAPD and informed them that this Paul Norris individual was scheduled to bring the equipment over to his house on April 25th of 1946. Two detectives from the Hollywood Division of the Los Angeles Police Department, Lieutenant Colin C. Forbes and Sergeant Stuart W. Johnson, they arrive at Starr's home located at 1347 Fifth Avenue in Los Angeles, and they're hiding inside of the house when this man approaches it, walking down the driveway as though with purpose. And it's at this point that stories diverge as to what actually happened. Some say that a shootout ensued between Walker and these two police officers. Others state that as soon as the cops accosted him, Walker pulled out his gun, which was a 45 caliber automatic, and just opened fire on them. Now, it is known that the police were able to return fire, although Lieutenant Forbes, 
His gun jammed and he was fairly quickly taken out of action with a fairly serious gunshot wound to the stomach. Walker was then hit in the stomach and left leg by bullets that had been fired by Sergeant Johnson. And here's where the story starts to take on almost Hollywood-type qualities. Walker was able to escape, and he did this by actually climbing into the sewers and using the tunnels that were underneath the city to make his getaway. While this is going on, both Johnson and Forbes are still back at Starr's house, and they were rushed to the hospital, where it was found that the bullet that had struck Forbes had actually lodged against his spine. He was listed in serious condition, although he eventually did recover. The bullet was never able to be removed from his body. How Walker was able to get treated for his wounds, there's a couple different stories on this. Walker himself later stated that he actually treated them himself. Well, some reports that I have found have questioned the validity of this. Wondering if perhaps he might not have gone to a walk-in doctor and been treated for his wounds, or perhaps even driven out of the county in order to get them treated. If that were the case, it wouldn't be unheard of, especially given this period of time. This was 1946, 19, 1996. News didn't travel anywhere near as fast as it does now. And even if it did, it's doubtful a doctor would have broken his oath to inform the police. In any event, Walker was able to slip through the cracks and continue on with his crime spree. In May of 1946, Walker turned his attention to another type of establishment this time stealing rolls of safety detonating fuse as well as priming cord. And this shows the level of intelligence of this particular criminal. Walker actually made his own explosives in order to blow the safes that these items were stored in using something called fuming nitric acid, sulfuric acid, and glycerin, Walker was able to make nitroglycerin. Now, in order to transport this, Walker had to make the nitroglycerin safe for transport, and he used some type of desensitizing agent before packing the vials of nitroglycerin into boxes filled with cotton. Now, news of some of these burglaries had made it into the local papers and such, although it wasn't being reported on as much as it would be today. What happened next made instant headlines. On June 5th, Walker drove to 
Glendale, California, where there was a meat market located at the corners of Los Feliz Boulevard and Brunswick Avenues. This wouldn't be so odd except for the fact that Walker actually arrived at this meat market in the very early morning hours. And using a pair of bolt cutters, he cut the lock from the door of this meat market before putting on his own padlock. After which he hid the bolt cutters and went back to his car. Walker then drives around the block a time or two to make certain that he had not been observed cutting the lock off and replacing it before returning to retrieve his bolt cutters, after which he gets back into his car and drives away. You can almost see that his thinking is not the clearest at this point. You know, he cuts the lock, changes it, he stashes the the bolt cutters, gets in his car, drives around the block, then goes back once he's certain that nobody's seen him, grabs the pair of bolt cutters, puts them back in the car, and then drives around the block again. It's almost like his mind is unraveling somewhat. Now, he parks his car around the block from this meat market and then gets out and goes to walk back towards the building when he sees a flashlight over in the vicinity of the area where he had stashed his bolt cutters. So now Walker's mind starts going crazy and he begins to panic thinking, you know, oh crap, I'm I'm busted. He quickly realizes that it's a man on foot as the flashlight moves away from the area where the bolt cutters had been hidden and the individual gets into a car and begins to drive towards Walker. The car pulls up abreast to Walker, and Walker realizes that it's a police officer. Now, this wasn't just some run-of-the-mill cop. This man had actually been the chief of police in Arcadia, California, and he was now working as a highway patrolman. His name was Lauren Cornwell Roosevelt. Roosevelt sees Walker standing there and calls him over to the car, wondering what he's doing in this area at this time of night. Walker tells him that he is going to see a girlfriend, at which point Roosevelt asks to see Walker's ID. Unbeknownst to Walker, Roosevelt had one hand on the flashlight and the other resting on the butt of his gun as Walker reaches down ostensibly to get his license out for the officer to see. Now, there's two different versions of what happens at this point. The most widely known story is that Walker pulled out the 45 which he had used on the other two officers and immediately shot Roosevelt before turning 
ducking and fleeing, abandoning his car and climbing into the sewers from which he made his escape yet again. The other version comes from Glendale police officers who stated that Walker told them that Roosevelt, upon seeing Walker's gun, had opened fire first, which caused Walker to duck and return fire. After he had fired at the officer, again, this is coming from members of the Glendale Police Department, Walker told them that Roosevelt asked him to call an ambulance, and Walker refused, saying, quote, I'll do nothing for you, at which point he fled on foot into the sewers. This firefight in the early morning hours did not go on notice, however. Residents called for the police who showed up and quickly got an ambulance on scene. Unbeknownst to Walker, Roosevelt was still alive at this point, although grievously wounded, and the story that he told the responding officers was quite different from the one that Walker would later tell them. According to Roosevelt, he had been returning home from his shift when he began to pursue a speeding vehicle on... Wasfeli's Boulevard, which slowed down to an almost near stop when Officer Roosevelt drew abreast of it, and it was at this time that the driver of the vehicle opened fire on him. According to Walker later, he only fired twice, however, newspaper accounts from the time as well as coroner's reports state that Roosevelt was hit at least nine times by forty-five caliber bullets, which would have been almost impossible to do with a handgun. However, depending on where you look, some sources state that it's more probable that Walker actually opened fire on Roosevelt with a Tommy gun, which, while possible, has to be extremely difficult a maneuver to pull while you're driving a car. I remember I said he was near stopped. He hadn't completely stopped. He was still driving when, at least according to Roosevelt, he opened fire on him, which lends the idea of basically that, according to Roosevelt, Walker just strafed his car like it was a gangster movie with bullets and then took off. While Roosevelt was taken to the hospital where he would later die, investigators began looking over the crime scene and they very easily found Walker's car, which was found to contain a loaded Tommy gun, a pair of bolt clutters, bag of tools, sash cord, bell wire, hacksaw blades, a hand drill, an electric drill, crescent wrenches, a pry bar, extension cord, hammers, pliers, wire cutters, nitroglycerin, adhesive tape, 
a percussion type dynamite blasting cap that was attached to a primer cord as well as a blackjack. And for those younger listeners who don't know what a blackjack is, it preceded the use of billy clubs by police. It was a piece of leather that handled a a, a little wad of lead inside of it. It's also called a, a sap and a flapjack. And basically, police would use that to hit suspects over the head with in order to stun them that they could be taken into custody. After this incident, Walker appears to have attempted to go straight. He abandons stealing and tries getting jobs, you know, straight men jobs working at various stores and factories. He also takes up attempting to make license plates and driver's licenses, this in an effort to sell various vehicles that he had stolen over the ensuing months of his crime spree. Eventually, though, Walker did return to robberies, and he began holding up liquor stores. Obviously, the death of a police officer is not something that law enforcement ever takes lightly, so they really began pressing to find this individual who had committed this crime, and it's unknown whether or not they had found any fingerprints inside of the vehicle, given that Walker was so intelligent and that he had really perfected his art of robbery, it is doubtful that he ha- would have been foolish enough to drive one of these vehicles or to handle any of the equipment inside of them without gloves on his hands. In any event, the police started asking the public for tips and eventually one came in fingering Walker as a potential suspect in this shooting as well as in possible robberies. He was tracked down to a duplex located at 1831 and a half North Argyle Avenue in Los Angeles. On the morning of December 20th, 1946, at roughly 2 a.m., three detectives, officers Wynn, Donahue, and Rombu, entered Walker's apartment using a key that had been provided to them by the landlord. I want you to try and envision this final scene of Walker's arrest. He's lying in bed, apparently with a 45 caliber handgun within reach, as officers go to make their way into the apartment. They come inside just as Walker is reaching for a Tommy gun, and a brawl ensues, during which Walker is shot at least twice in the shoulder, and eventually has the butt of a handgun shattered over the top of his head. And this was enough to get Walker to collapse to the ground, at which point officers were able to slap handcuffs on him. 
after they got the cuffs on him, Walker is reported as having said, All right now, you have me do a good job. It was at this point that the detectives began questioning Walker. They didn't even wait to get him out of the apartment. The first thing they asked him was, Why did you kill Highway Patrolman Roosevelt? To which Walker replied, Had to. They next asked him if he was responsible for the earlier shooting of the two Hollywood Police Department detectives, to which Walker replied that yes, he had in fact gotten into the gun battle with them. At this point, it's alleged that the officers noticed that Walker was bleeding quite heavily, so they did everything in their power to making him comfortable, including placing a pillow underneath his head and wrapping him in a blanket while they transported him to the hospital. They later stated under oath that at no time did Walker lose consciousness. After his arrest, officers began combing over Walker's apartment, and they were stunned at the things that they found. There were boxes of ammunition and weaponry hidden throughout the apartment. Nearby, the officers found three cars that Walker had stolen over the course of his crime spree, one of which was found to have a Tommy gun positioned so that Walker would be able to fire it through the door. This means that he was planning on possibly being stopped by police. This might have been something that he set up after his encounter with Officer Roosevelt, not wanting to be captured and fearing that, you know, now the police are really after him, he could have set this contraption up as a precaution. On the way to the hospital, police continued to question Walker. One of the things that they learned was that he had been pulled over the previous week by two CHIPS officers, which are the California Motorcycle Police, for a minor traffic infraction. And when pressed on this, Walker told them that he had been given a warning before stating, quote, Lucky for them, they didn't try to take me out of the car. I had a submachine gun with me then. You might have had two more dead cops. Walker continued to speak with the officers throughout the evening, and obviously he was under arrest at this point. Eventually, he did go to trial after recovering from his wounds. It's important to note that unlike many other criminals that I have covered on this show, Walker did take responsibility for the crimes he committed as well as the attempted murder of the Hollywood Police Department detectives and the actual murder of Officer Roosevelt. Now, while Walker was in the hospital, he continued to talk to the police. It's been said that he spoke with them freely and of his own volition. One of the officers that... Walker repeatedly talked with was Detective Wynn, who, if you'll remember, was one of the arresting officers. Wynn would later testify at 
Walker's trial, stating that Walker freely talked with him about his various crimes as well as the shootout with the two Hollywood Police Department detectives and the shooting of Officer Roosevelt, and that at one point in time a stenographer arrived, at which point Wynne ceased his questioning only to resume it once again in the presence of the stenographer who took down everything that was said, and also with a doctor and a nurse in the room and that Walker's story had not changed. Now, at some point while he was in the hospital, Walker learned from his family that serious mental illness ran through both sides of it. This is important as we're moving forward because at one point Walker is going to claim that the statements he made to the police, he wasn't in his right frame of mind due to mental illness. Now, this mental illness that was revealed to Walker, including a great-great-grandfather, a great-great-uncle, and a great-great-aunt, all of whom spent some period of time inside of a sane asylums, it was also claimed that a great-grandfather and a great-aunt had both committed suicide, while one of his great-grandmothers was confined to the Patton State Psychiatric Hospital, which is in San Bernardino, California, and another relative who reportedly had had hallucinations off and on throughout the years. Further, it was revealed to... Walker, uh, this was used at his trial, that one of his close cousins suffered from mental handicaps, while that cousin's father was quote-unquote psychoneurotic. Walker eventually got out of the hospital and went on trial starting on June 2nd, 1947, where his attorney... Gerald Frederick Grant claimed that Walker was suffering from a severe mental illness and he used Walker's life prior to the war to try and paint this picture of a man who had gone insane due to the things that he had seen during the war. And in all of this some really interesting things came out. The biggest being Walker's stated reason for having committed the crimes that he did. He claimed that the garage he had been storing a lot of the stolen items in, the one that he was turning into an experimentation lab, was in fact for him to create an electronic ray gun with which he would be able to disintegrate metal and in turn use that to force the governments of the world to stop having wars. In addition to this, both of Walker's parents took the stand on his behalf with his mother claiming that growing up, Walker had been a sweet and affectionate child 
and that upon returning from the war, she found her son to be a withdrawn shell of him for his former self, showing little affection and oftentimes behaving erratically. To counter this, the police presented witnesses who had interacted with Walker in the time since he had gotten out of the war, as well as the officers who had arrested him. Again, we're going back to Detective Wynn, who continued to talk about how he had repeatedly visited Walker while he was in the hospital, and that on the day Walker was actually getting ready to leave the hospital, Walker confided in him that he felt weak and strung out and requested that Wynne get for him from the doctor opioids. Wynne attempted to do this, and the doctor refused. Now, this may be because the doctor understood how intelligent Walker was and suspected that he may have been trying to commit suicide with the drugs, or it might have been because the doctor had no compassion for a man who had been accused of committing murder and attempted murder onto police officers. You've got to remember, this is the 1940s. The America as a whole had a much different view of their public servants, particularly police officers. And I'm not trying to get political in any way, shape, or form with this show. Whereas today, you might have people cheering on the fact that an officer was murdered or was shot. In the 1940s, it was unheard of. There may have been and very likely were people that you know, took some form of joy in that. But as a whole, the public consciousness of the time rebelled against the idea of somebody lashing out at law enforcement in such a manner and really took a, you know, defensive stand against their public servants. So it wouldn't be outside of the realm of imagination to see this doctor as denying him these, you know, painkillers as a way of, you know, getting back at Walker for the crimes which he had been accused of. Detective Wynn further went on to state that even once he was transferred to the jail from the hospital, he continued to have conversations with Walker and at one point approached Walker requesting that he give permission and participate in a recreation of the shooting of Officer Roosevelt, which was really one of the only times that Walker ever balked at anything the officers requested of him, stating that he would need to talk to his lawyer, at which point he gave Detective Wynn his lawyer's business card. Detective Wynn attempted to contact his lawyer, Unfortunately, he was unable to make contact with the man. One thing that Walker did concede to, however, was a sort of a field trip to Griffith Park in Los Angeles, where Walker had informed the officers he had stashed some items related to his various crimes. 
So with Detective Wynn and various other officers in tow, they went to this park and collected these pieces of evidence before returning to the jail. When eventually the trial was wrapped up, the judge decided to reject Walker's claim of mental illness, stating in part, quote, This is a case in which I feel my responsibility very greatly. The defendant, of course, in his lengthy time on the witness stand here, showed a high degree of intelligence. I seldom recall a more intelligent witness, a witness who gave clearer responses to the questions than did Mr. Walker. It is true that he had a war experience that, in the vernacular of the servicemen, might be termed rugged, but without analyzing it or comparing it to much. I would say that perhaps millions of his fellow Americans had experienced that they were equally rugged during the war. A killing in an attempt to perpetrate a burglary is a murder of the first degree. However, I believe that in addition to my finding that the killing of Lauren Roosevelt was murder in the first degree as a matter of law, I feel that it was a deliberate killing, a purposeful killing on the defendant's part. Walker ends up being sentenced to death, which is appealed as Walker has no desire to go into the gas chamber at San Quentin. This appeal is in return rejected, as is the request for a new trial. Because of all of this, Walker's father ends up killing himself with a length of rope. You're probably thinking Walker's story's got to be over, but in fact it's not. While he's sitting on death row at San Quentin, a prison psychologist diagnoses Walker with paranoid schizophrenia. Walker was scheduled to be executed on April 16th of 1949. However, this was not to come to pass as on the 14th of April, a officer found Walker unconscious in his cell. He had attempted to commit suicide using the cord from a radio headphones that he had wrapped around his neck. He was able to be revived, and at this point, Walker's death sentence was indefinitely placed on hold while he was sent to a psychiatric hospital for observation and testing. Walker was found by a board of psychiatrists to be, quote, negativistic, mute, fearful and unresponsible and possibly reacting to hallucinations, this in regard to his impending death. It was further stated that he lapsed into semi-unconsciousness and that he was unable to differentiate between right and wrong. Those of you who know anything about the law in the United States, and I know there are quite a few judges and lawyers who follow this show know what that means. Walker was legally insane, and therefore he could not be executed by the state of California. A hearing was held at which point Walker was declared legally insane and transferred to the jurisdiction of the Mendocino State Hospital, where he spent the next 12 years 
it was noted that Walker was rather aloof while at the hospital. He eventually did state to individuals that possibly dying in the gas chamber would have been preferable to quote-unquote being with those creatures. In 1961, Walker was found to be legally sane, and fearing that he may be driven back over the brink once again should he be faced with the death sentence, the governor of the time, Pat Brown, commuted Walker's sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and Walker was transferred to the CMF State Prison Facility in Vacaville, California. While there, Walker took on work in a laboratory on the prison campus and studied chemistry, something that he had taken to doing once again when he was inside the state psychiatric hospital. Walker remained incarcerated until 1970 when he began to file appeals, the first being a habeas corpus petition with the Supreme Court of California, which was denied. Walker, however, refused to give up, and he made a similar petition to the Solano County Superior Court asking that his 1947 trial be set aside as Walker claimed his confessions had not been given voluntarily and may in fact have been beaten out of him or under given under duress. Eventually, the California Supreme Court decided to hear the case, deciding in 1974 that the portion of Walker's sentence that did not grant him parole should be removed from the record by the lower courts, which in fact it was. Walker petitioned to be paroled in 1974, just after the Supreme Court rendered its decision, and he was released. After spending some time in a halfway house, Walker legally changed his name and pretty much vanished from the face of the earth. There are conflicting reports as to the year Walker died. If you look on Murderpedia, it will state that he actually passed away in 1982. Other sources give his day of death as being in 2008, which would put him at the age of 91. In fact, it's stated that he died on October 7th, which was the day after his birthday. Walker appears to have lived out the remainder of his years in quiet obscurity without ever having offered any real explanation or even apology to either his family, friends, or victims' families. That is the death cast for this week. Again, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did like this show, please consider going to the Corpse Creek Publishing website and clicking on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. Just let me know you enjoy what I'm doing. Also, don't forget to go to your favorite podcast site,
and leave a five-star review. They really do help the show get out to a much broader audience, and it is greatly appreciated. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.